This episode is brought to you by GME. Since 1959, GME has been an Australian-owned family company and remains the only Australian manufacturer of UHF CB radios, with their products designed, engineered and manufactured in Sydney's northwest. GME's products cover a range of recreational activities, from fishing to four-wheel driving and touring, in addition to catering for heavy vehicles and agriculture. GME have released a limited edition range of pink products to raise money for the McGrath Foundation to assist in their tireless efforts of funding regional breast care nurses and supporting families in communities across regional Australia. You can find out more by finding them on Facebook, Instagram or at gme.net.au. Listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. This podcast is brought to you by Ariat Australia, the perfect choice for the tough jobs. Ariat boots and clothing work hard, look good, and are so comfortable there's never a need to slow down. Visit ariat.com.au today. This episode discusses mental health and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. When Damon Kaylock didn't have success in landing a job as a jackaroo, He didn't give up. He just came up with plan B. The plan? To work as a station cook. Get onto a station and work his way into the stock camp. And, spoiler alert, it worked. Damon has worked for the same company in the NT for eight years now and has been a station cook, jackaroo and bore runner. In this episode, Damon reflects on his experiences so far both good and the not so good. Our conversation took an unexpected turn, with Damon choosing to be very candid about his mental health, and I am incredibly grateful to him for this. We've had a few people share their mental health experiences on this podcast before, and afterwards I always receive messages of appreciation through our Facebook, Instagram and email. So, Damo... Thank you for sharing your story and letting others know they aren't alone. I started our conversation by asking Damo what his current role on the station is. I am the bore runner here at Mount Sanford Station, so I spend most of my day driving around looking at things and playing with water, really. Now, bore running hasn't been the only job that you've had on a station, you first started off as a cook. Yeah, so I started as the station cook at VRD back in 2015. Did that for two years. Then I went into the stock camp in 2017. Had 2018 back down home. And then back up in 2019, as the start of the season as a ball runner, went back in the camp and 
then moved to Mount Sanford in 20, 2020. Jeez, that's time flying. Uh, started here as the cook and then the ball runner left and I sort of stepped in and been back ball running ever since, really. When most people think about a fella heading north to work on a cattle station, they just, you know, I think it's, it's the, um, the go-to to think, oh, they're just going to go work in the camp. They're going to go be a cowboy, ride some horses, chase some cows, you know. You came up to the territory to be the station cook. How, that is, you know, and, and not only is that just a, a different pathway or a different story from what we hear so often, but a lot of, you know, there aren't very many male cooks in this industry either. I'm not really sure why, but, you know, so it's a little bit of an anomaly there too. What made you want to come out on a station as a cook? Well, that's funny actually, because originally when I started applying for jobs, I was applying for as a, as a station hand, but not many people like to take a 25 year old bloke who's got zero to no experience in cattle industry or agriculture in general. So I thought, oh, I'll take it the opposite way and I'll start off as a cook and work myself around and finally try and get into a stock camp or, yeah, and that's sort of how it happened. I applied for a cook's job at VRD and Julian Rusty sort of took me under the wing there and taught me everything they could teach me and Kayla and all that and I got to go out with the camp a fair bit, go out and camp out cooking for them when they were camped out and got to help in the yards and then slowly just worked from there and ended up getting a job in the camp 2017. Yeah, so what? why, you know, you're 25, you're living in Wagga or Wagga Wagga and you're like, hell, I'm going to go up to the Territory and, you know, work as a cook What? or, you know, you wanted to be in the camp originally how do you come up to that conclusion? Well, actually, I'd worked in hospitality since I was about 17 and all the long nights and all that sort of stuff that goes along with hospitality sort of started to wear a bit thin on me. So I was like, and I had a cousin who was working up here on in stock camps around the place and uh, he said it was fun up here and I thought, why not? I was young, I was single. Had nothing tie me down, so I packed my bags and I was a qualified chef, so I was like, mm, I'll head north and see what that brings. But as you just said before, you had no agricultural experience before. Like, you didn't grow up on a farm, you didn't kind of have any background. Like, that's a pretty huge leap. Yeah, but at the same time, I was sort of like, what's the point? I can give it a go, and if I don't like it after the first year, I can just come home, right? But after the first year, I sort of enjoyed it, and here I am now, still going after six years or so. So what does the job of station cook entail, and how did it compare to working as a chef down south? Um, it was actually a bit of a shock, sort of, to the system. Because like, down south, like, you don't do that much butchery at all, like, you call up the butchers, they'll send you rump steak and scotch fill it all in a box and then you just cut it to the size you want. Whereas out here, you sort of got to break down a whole beast yourself. Oh, not by yourself, but you got a bit of a hand, but you get a lot more different cuts than what you'd normally get in a restaurant. Like in the restaurant, you sort of go, no, nah, I only want these cuts. 
Whereas here you get the whole boost and you sort of got to figure out your menu around there and on top of that, uh, you can't just duck to the shop to buy something that you forgot. You sort of got to plan your menus in advance and work out what you're going to need and the budget's a bit more, I suppose you could say strict, but at the same time, like, you're not restricted in what you buy, but at the same time, you sort of got to work within a confined... Within a budget, whereas in a restaurant, you know, if you want to increase your budget, you can just charge people more for yeah. the food, Like, whereas it doesn't really work like that. How far was the station from town and how did you order your supplies, your food, and how often would they come? Um, so my first place was VRD and it was yeah, about 400 k's, give or take, good four-hour drive to town depending on how good the Buntine and all that was and the Buchanan. But my driving some days takes about five or six hours, but, hey, it is what it is. Hey, you're conserving fuel, okay? Yeah. And when your car's got no air con, you don't don't tend to go too fast. But, yeah, we used to order our food mm, once every three weeks to once a month, give or take, just depending on... What was going on? How many? How often we were having visitors? To what the camp was doing? Like if the camp were camped out for a month, well, you didn't need as much fresh fruit and veg because they couldn't rely on it out at camp all the time. But when when they were around home a lot more, you you try and pump the fresh fruit and veg and salads and everything into them, and also depend on what time of the year it is too, like. In the middle of the season, when she's cold mornings and cold nights, you want that warmer food that sits in your stomach, whereas the back end of the year to the build-up to the wet, you sort of want the lighter salads and steak nights and stuff like that. How different was it, I guess, the level of responsibility when you're a chef, you have a menu and people are coming to you just for a meal, you know, it's one meal in their day, their week, their month, their life. You know, it's just it's a it's a one off experience, um, and people have free choice. It literally they have a menu; they can pick whatever they want, and it's not your responsibility. You know, you provide the menu they pick. Whereas when you're a station cook, you are responsible for developing the menu for what people are going to eat three meals a day, plus you know, smoko and any any other you know kind of snacks. Um, and this is their, their diet. It's not just their menu, but it's their diet. You are in control to an extent of their nutrition. Like it doesn't matter if somebody comes to you at a restaurant and orders like the fattiest, disgustingest cheeseburger. Well, not that you'd have a cheeseburger at a restaurant, but you know, something really gluttonous. Yeah. Because like for all you know, ribs or something. Yeah. Cause for all you know, like, you know, they could be, that's their treat for the week. Whereas you can't just do that 24 seven on a station because you are, you are. Uh, like the gatekeeper to their nutrition and what's available to them. How did you wrap your head around that? Uh, it was a bit of a, probably a bit of a struggle at the start, just wrapping my head around it, just with all the different aspects, I suppose, because it wasn't just like in the restaurants, it was either breakfast, lunch or lunch and dinner. It was I had to provide the three meals a day plus your smokers and then dessert. 
every second or third night, give or take. Like. And then on top of that, like, you got to f- think about, oh, well, if the crew aren't working too hard this week, they don't really need something heavy sitting in their guts all day. And, like, if they're around the homestead or for lunch and that, oh, can I get away with pasta and salad or hamburgers for lunch or something different? So it was a bit of a challenge at the start, but once I got into it and a bit of help from Julie, I started to get into a bit of a rhythm. But then there is times like during the year where you sort of get stuck in a rut and you're doing the same six or seven dishes on repeat for a while and you don't even realise. But you've got to always have the staple of crumb steak, steak night, and then a chicken dish in there somewhere just to break it up. Oh, chicken is such a luxury on a station. Oh, my God. I reckon I used to get asked more often than not, can we have crumb steak and chips and salad every night? (laughs) And I'm pretty sure if I could do it, the crew would have lived off it. But unfortunately, that's not how it works. Where do you draw your inspiration from to, like you said, you know, you can get stuck in a rut with the same six or seven meals. If I were ever a camp cook, I mean, I can only actually cook six or seven meals, which is why I'm not a camp cook. But how do you keep it? different and no, you know, I haven't cooked this for, you know, I cook this, I can do it once a week or I can only do that once a fortnight. And then, yeah, balancing that, you know, between salad and vegetables and protein and and the fatty stuff and, you know, then the sweets. And then, you know, it's really easy when you're making a smoko um, to make it all really sweet. Like it's so easy to bang out some muffins and slices, but then, you know, you've got to put out some savoury stuff or maybe some healthier stuff or, yeah, how did you balance that? Um, I did read... I suppose with most stations, they've got their fair stash of recipe books that people have added to the collections over the time. I'm pretty sure I've left a few recipe books around here and there and everywhere. 50 bucks down the drain, but who cares? But I suppose I used to, I suppose the crews are fairly open these days and I used to ask them a fair bit of what they were looking for, what they wanted or what they missed from town or something. So like, Occasionally I'd make rice paper rolls, not my favourite thing to make, they're a bit fiddly, but every now and again if they're in for smoker or something I'd make them and it'd just brighten up the crew's day or if the crew had been on a long stretch I'd make homemade maccas for breakfast and make a big jug of iced coffee and they'd have hash browns, bacon egg muffins and iced coffee for breakfast and they all thought it was the best thing going around. So I'd after a while, I just sort of started looking at some stuff that they like to eat when they go to town. Not all the time, but like, I suppose most of us, when we go to town, the first thing we hit is Maccas or Coffee Club either way. Whatever you're up for. But yeah, it's, I suppose these days, just talking to the crew and seeing what they enjoy really, because at the end of the day, they're the ones you feed them. And if they're not happy, then it ends up coming back to you eventually sometime. It was only after a couple of years in the kitchen that you managed to make it into the stock camp, which was, of course, your primary goal when you first applied to come up north. What was that like when you found out that you were going to be given a go in the camp? How did you feel? I was pretty excited and a bit nervous. Like, my grandfather, when... I told him I was moving up north. He said, oh, 
told me because I got a trade as a chef, I don't ever go chasing cows or anything. But I went and did it anyway, and he was proud of me for that. And I suppose I had a fair bit of a crack and enjoyed it while I was doing it. Body won't let me do it too much these days, but I still get out there every now and again when I can and help in the yards. When you moved up north, you left a fairly populated area to come out to one of the most remote parts of the country. But while that was a huge change, you were the job you took on was cooking and being a chef was your trade. So there was something familiar there for you. When you and you know because. It can be one thing to start a completely different job later on in life, but there was, while it was a different job to what you'd done before and in a very different location, there was something familiar there because it was within your ballpark, you know, within your industry. Then you completely went outside of your industry and went in the camp, in the stock camp, as a 26, 27-year-old, which is, you know, fairly later in life to be doing that. What was your experience like? I enjoyed it. I I suppose I sort of helped some of the younger crew who were having a few issues at home, like being first time they'd been away from home and that. So I suppose me being in the quarters with them sort of helped them have someone to chat to sort of thing. Because like, I'd been out of home for a while, I'd, not that I'd been living up north long, but I'd been, since I was about 18 or so, I'd been moving around a fair bit. Like moved out of home, worked in a few little towns and everything, so I sort of had a rough idea what I was doing. So I sort of, I suppose, I was that hand for the younger fellas who didn't quite know how what to do. I suppose you could say, like we had one young fella that, like he was having some relationship issues, like. I suppose like most young kids with their first love have the like, the girlfriends like oh I miss you uh, that sort of stuff that goes on and I suppose I sort of helped him move along like come on mate like we're all a team like you can make it through we'll help you through and your girlfriend will still be there with you when you finish and I think still to this day they're still together and that's that says something I said to him, you come up here to prove something and wanted to learn, so we'll get through this year and then we'll think about next year after that. Like, I reckon everyone, if you're going to come up here, at least for a year, give it a go for a year. Like, I don't know. I've always been the one that if you're going to stick to it, just stick to it. Don't back out. So while you didn't bring any... Uh, perhaps technical skills uh, or practical skills to the camp in terms of previous cattle work or fencing or things like that. It was the life experience that you had being, you know, older than the than some of the crew. And it, it was, you know, it wasn't cattle related, but it's still very relevant, the life experience you had. That was kind of your place in the camp. Yeah, I suppose you could say that. Look, yeah, because I've had that life experience moving around and running restaurants and that, look. I learned how to work people, how to help people when they're in their worst times and stuff like that and pick up when crew aren't feeling right and sometimes it's just as easy just to sit down in the quarters of a night time and have a beer and go, look, there's something not right, just let's talk about it. 
we're not going to bed till whatever's wrongs come up sort of thing. So it seems like that was your strength was being able to offer that to the crew. You know, I everywhere you go, everyone in the crew generally has different strengths and weaknesses and something they bring to make the team and everyone, you know, no one's good at everything. So you kind of, once you get the crew together, that's when you get the good team. Um, that's, you know, like anywhere in life. So it seems like your place and what you brought to the team was that. What was it like for you when you first had to get into the yards or go mustering? You know, it must have been very foreign that you, were you riding a horse or on a motorbike out mustering? Uh, I was usually on a horse majority of the time. Or had, you, had you ridden before? I'd had a few lessons with Julie here and there and done the odd sit on a horse and walk around down home, but nothing out in the paddock chasing things around the flat, just pretty basic really. How did that feel, you know, so say when you're able to give advice to the, um, like you said, with that life experience to the crew, like you're kind of in your element there, you've got that experience, you can give that advice or that kind of, guidance but then when you're out mustering or in the yards you're completely out of your element because you've got no experience in that so what how, tell me about what that was like um that was definitely a lot different i ended up i suppose like any place like after a while everyone sort of gets their little niche of what they're good at at the end of my uh, first year i was pretty good on the branding so i used to do majority of the branding of the calves and the wieners and that or work the race, occasionally a bit of the backyard, but the boys that were in the backyard and the round yard had been in the camp the previous year, so they sort of had their, I suppose you could say, spot. So they, they knew where they were good. As a chef, you were working at one end of the supply chain when the product was slaughtered, cut up, chilled, packaged, presented to you neatly, like literally the final product, well, I suppose, unless you're the person eating it off the plate. Yeah. And then here you are at the complete beginning of the supply chain, as far back as you can go, watching them being born, raising them, the nutrition, um, the, the management, all that sort of things. Did that give you a whole different perspective um, on your, or your previous job as a chef and just, you know, the food industry and the way food is produced and raised in the meaning of meat? I'd say yes. Like I had a bit of respect from like where everything come from before. Like just the way I was taught and everything, like have a bit of respect for where your ingredients come from. But I suppose once I started working with cattle and that I started taking a bit more pride in it. Because over the wet seasons when I went home I still cooked. So I started taking a bit more pride in I'd go see a local farmer and start using local stuff, a lot more local stuff, because I knew how much effort that poor farmer had to go through. So I'd rather get it direct from him than going through some big, big end chain where I wouldn't see, wouldn't ever get to meet the farmer. Whereas I get to meet the farmer, go out, check the farm. Sometimes you get to pick the pig that you wanted to, oh, that pig looks nice. Could I get that one? He'd do the rest and then I'd come into the shop and we'd cut it up together and that's how we used to do it after I'd started working up here. But 
yeah, up, once I've moved up here, yeah, I'd say I've got a lot more respect out of where everything come from. If your original goal was to work in the stock camp and then after being in the in the kitchen for a couple of years you got there, how come you ended up being a ball runner? Um, well, after my first year in the camp in 2017, I had a few mishaps, I suppose you could say, as most people do. I'd done a few injuries and that's why I took 2018 off and spent it down down south there, down home. And, um, yeah, the body wouldn't take the hits like it used to and I was talking to Rusty and Julie at VRD there and they were looking for a ballman, so I was like, oh, well, no time than the better. Like, the whole year I was down home, I was itching to get back north and I said to myself, no, I said I was going to take the year off to let the body heal and when I talked to Jules and Rusty, they only had the ballman's job left, so I was like, right, I'll take it and go from there and, yeah, I'll come back up as the ball runner and um I suppose... I had a bit of a, I don't know how you word it, a bit of a breakdown there around Pussycat that year. Um, ended up in Darwin Hospital. I suppose, like most people, we have our struggles. And it took me to one day on a ball run, I suppose, about lunchtime. I uh, was having a bit of a bad run that few weeks. And everything sort of got on top of me and... uh had a few unsavoury thoughts, I suppose you could say. And uh, I went and sat at the clinic and spoke to one of the nurses I knew pretty closely. Told her what had been going on and how, I suppose, I wasn't feeling myself, I suppose you could say, and wasn't feeling safe. And then she put me onto a mental health nurse. I ended up being a getting made an inpatient um, and pretty much being told that I wasn't allowed to leave the clinic till I got flown to Darwin. It was, I didn't have a choice. I couldn't go anywhere. If I didn't go with the clinic, I was going to get made to go to Darwin. So I accepted and went to Darwin, spent a couple of weeks there in Darwin Hospital and got a lot of help. And then that sort of helped me open up a bit more about my struggles. And then, yeah, I'll come back to the station and due to what had, the nature of everything that sort of happened, I went back in the stock camp and had another run at it, which, uh, I enjoyed. Changed my perspective again a bit, I suppose. Got to hang out with the boys again and, Work hard, play hard, party hard, I suppose you could say. And go to all the camp drafts again and have a fun time, really. With your mental health struggles, was that something that you had been experiencing before you came up north to work on stations or do you think this developed after you came up north? No, I'd been struggling with it for years and years. I think after I'd spent that time down home over 2018. I wasn't really in a happy place being down there, I suppose you'd say. That's why I enjoyed 
living up here for so long yeah and um don't get me wrong i love my family and all that and they're all supportive but even they could tell that well, I wasn't happy down home, so they, they were glad to see me come back up here. But um, I suppose I went the wrong way about it. I um, tried to hide it under drinking and everything and pretend everything was sort of okay And until one day it just sort of all caved in on each, one another and, yeah, went and se- seeked help, I suppose. Do you think... There was, you know, you had your time in the stock camp, but this kind of really escalated to where it did when you were bore running. And that's a very isolated, probably one of the most or the most isolated jobs on a station. You know, you're working by yourself most of the time. You're out there on your own. You're not, it's very different to being in the stock camp where you're, even though no matter what role you have on a station, you're a part of a team, but it's a very different environment than when you're in the stock camp and you have that immediate team around you. Do you think that contributed to uh, your experience? Um, I suppose it did a little lot because I suppose when in the stock camp, when you have a big issue, you sort of all huddle in as a team and work it out. Blah, 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 blah. We got X amount of cattle we need branded, so we need the best ones here and the best ones there. Whereas, oh, this bloody trough won't stop leaking. I've tried everything, and then not saying I couldn't approach the bosses, but I wanted to try and fix it there and then on my own, and I didn't want to be talking all over the two ways and making it sound worse than what it was, because. Some days I struggle to get me words out of what I actually mean. I could be trying to say one thing and say something completely different so it doesn't make sense, I suppose. That's where I sort of suppose I like having a phone these days. If you have an issue and you can't get to the bottom of it, you can easily just take a photo or take a video and go back to the boss. This is what I'm looking at. I've tried everything. And that's what I ended up doing there in the end there was... Going to the bosses, oh, I've got this video, I don't know how to fix this problem, where do I go from here? And that sort of helped me open up to a bit more, like when I took over this ball running job, I suppose I was trying to do the best I could without asking for help. Sounds like you're putting a lot of pressure on yourself. Yeah, like, once I talked to the managers when I got back and explained everything they said like they said like we're, we're never not approachable like you should have just come up and said it but I felt in myself that I should be able to fix it myself without humbugging other people for help. In addition to the fact that you had had your struggles for some years before you came up north and then you're also in this very isolated environment or physical environment. You know, you're quite far from town. Our access to services is certainly not as easy as if you were back in Wagga. Did you ever feel, you know, up here, it's, um, aside from, you know, mental health still has a fairly significant stigma wherever you go. It's certainly changing, but it still has a stigma. But I feel even more so in, the rural industries, the outback, agriculture, however you want to put it, you know, there's 
as much as we still are trying to break it down, raise awareness about it, there's still very much this, um, you know, you need to be tough and strong and stoic and, you know, you kind of just bite your lip or bite, yeah, bite your lip and, and get on with it. Um, did you ever feel in this, not, not saying as a result of the station and the people you worked with in, in like directly, but just being up in this industry, did you feel that that contributed to you not wanting to kind of seek help? Um, not really. I suppose I've been sort of a, I suppose you'd say proud person, sort of brought up being a proud person all my life, like take pride in everything and sort of don't show weakness. And I suppose just the isolation didn't sort of break the camel's back, but I suppose not being able to just, like, not get me wrong, like, I enjoyed all the crew I've worked with, but sometimes you just need to go sit at the pub with your best mate and have a beer and just nut stuff out or go around to your cousin's place and have a couple of beers and just talk about stuff like that. Like, sometimes it's hard to talk about your family stuff up here. At the same time, like, yes, we all live and work together. Yes, we all, we're all mates and everything at the end of the day, but sometimes you just don't want to burden the people you work with, the other issues you've got going on, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's a very unique trait to this industry that you live and work, you know, your professional relationships and your personal relationships are generally one and the same because you really don't have any other options. And then you're also trying to balance your two worlds of, where you've spent your entire life and you've got a lifetime of relationships in your family and the people that know you and then no matter how long you've been up here, it it really is two different worlds. You kind of are balancing your before life, before up north life and then your after up north life. Yeah, I suppose at the start of each year lately, since I've went down and everything and had, had me breakdown, I've told all the crew at the start of each year, This is a different industry that we work in. We live, work, play in each other's pockets. So don't be afraid to speak up around us sort of thing. Because we're all here 24-7 in each other's pocket, there's no point trying to hide anything. Just be open and let's talk about it. Sort of try and break down that stigma a bit, I guess. After you received treatment in Darwin, you went back to work at the station and your managers and key people obviously were aware of what had happened. Um, I think for a lot of people that would have been a very daunting experience and uh, you know a lot more tempting to just go start fresh somewhere else because of the stigma that still is attached to mental health struggles. Not only have you come, have, you know, you've been with this company the entire time you've been up north and people within the company know about your experience. You're talking about it on a podcast now, you know, you're sharing your experience. How do you reconcile with that and and find comfort and, and be at peace in being able to do that? At first when uh, when I was coming back from Darwin, I suppose I was a bit nervous more than anything. I knew that certain people within the company would have known what happened. The managers knew. 
and the assistant manager Brent Steesby and that knew what had happened. But um, I didn't know how many people knew what had happened or what what had gone on. Um, so I was a bit, I suppose, probably a bit nervous, but at the same time I was sort of a bit relieved. Like I, I see Rusty and Julia's family, like working with them for so long, and that first phone call I gave Jules after I could use my phone again because when I got flown up there, I got flown and put in the, the high, high uh, risk ward, I suppose you'd say. So there was no phone access, no nothing. Like, I had to wait till I was put put down a ward. Um, and they were very worried about me. So I knew that I had a safe place to go back to at the same time, that they were concerned for me. I wasn't just a, I suppose, a number on someone's paybook. I was actually a person who actually meant something to the f- company, I suppose you could say. And um, when I got back, eventually I opened up to the crew about what had happened. And even to this day, I still open up to people. I haven't opened up completely to all my family about it. No. The main people of the family know what happened. And slowly and slowly, I've been opening up more and more to my family, but I suppose it's one of those things you don't want to open up to your family too much sometimes, but I'm finding these these days, the more and more I talk about it, the easier it is. Like, I'm not afraid to say, yes, I have, I've had my troubles. And um, pushing on from there, like, if you asked me two years ago when it all happened, would you sit down and talk on the podcast about it? I'd probably say no. I don't, I wouldn't know, I don't know, that sort of thing. Like, it's not my cup of tea, but these days I'm getting a bit more, I suppose, open and I'm happy to talk about my issues that I've had and how we can change that sort of stigma and sort of open up a bit more about it. It's somewhat serendipitous that you chose to speak about this this evening. Uh, it wasn't what we originally had planned for this episode, but I'm always so open for anybody to, to chat about mental health. Uh, if people remember from a few episodes ago, I did an episode with Matilda Robinson and and we said, like, we really want to keep this conversation going, but not just, you know, we want to take it from where we are right now, which is just raising awareness to really demonstrating how people can look after themselves in any circumstances, whether it's, you know, the extremes of anxiety and depression, suicide or suicidal ideations, or whether it's just, you know, generalized anxiety, uh, PTSD, intrusive thoughts. There's so many different, you know, mental health struggles is a spectrum. Uh, presents in all different ways, affects everybody differently. And what we said in that episode is that it doesn't, you don't have to be at one extreme to, to classify or to, you know, recognize that you have some struggles. So in that episode, we spoke about, uh, how Matilda manages her anxiety and depression. And I want to ask you now, what do you do? So obviously you spoke about going and getting treatment, but you know, it's not a one and done. What do you do kind of day in, day out or, you know, is, is a part of your life now to look after yourself and and care for your mental health? 
Um, I suppose the biggest thing I learnt was if you've had a crap day at work, leave it at the door when you come in of an afternoon. There's nothing worse than sitting there letting it chew away and chew away at you all day, all night. That was the biggest thing I think that sort of broke me down a bit was I'd stew on everything 24-7 like something wasn't right, I'd be sitting there banging my head against a wall trying to figure out what was wrong. But these days I just, if I have something wrong, I write it down, talk to the boss and if it's nothing major, we'll get to it tomorrow. It's not a, whereas I was sort of like, no, I need to sort it out now, I need to go out at 10 o'clock at night, I need to get this going. It's, if it's okay, we can wait till tomorrow and we'll go out and check it together sort of thing. When you were receiving treatment, did you receive like psychological uh, treatment, you know, therapy, you know, where you learnt skills and and to be able to manage that? Like how, like I'm just thinking like that, what you just described is something I do, but I had to go to three weeks of intensive therapy to to get the skills to to be able to actually do that. Um, I understand what you're saying, but it's, so much easier said than done. Like, how do you actually do that? Do you, do you have you had to follow up with any reading or listening, watching, or did you go to some some sort of therapy to develop those skills to be able to do that? No, um, I had a bit of one on one time with a uh, therapist there in the hospital, but other than that, I have the odd catch up here and there with the mental health team when they're out and about. I usually go out and see them at the clinic or whatever and I just sort of, I don't know. For the psychiatrist team that I had in Darwin, I'm pretty thankful for having. They um, they're actually surprised with how fast I turned around within the, especially with how far that I was in the depression cycle, I suppose you could say. Um, but I... Pretty much from day one when I got there, the, um, I suppose you call them uni students or whatever that are there learning, if ever they were asking for someone to talk to, I'd just say, yeah, no worries, I suppose. The more I talked about it and the more I listened to them asking questions and I suppose I listened to a fair bit of mental health podcasts as well too these days and listen to ways that other people deal with theirs and I suppose I take a bit from that, bit from this, bit from that and you sort of work out a plan that works for you sort of thing, I suppose. Before what you were just saying about stewing on things, um, I suppose the technical term is rumination and I've just had a thought that they say comparison is a thief of joy and if that's the case, then I think rumination is the thief of peace. Like while you're ruminating on something, you just can't be at peace. I suppose when I was stewing on most of that stuff, I wasn't my happy self, happy usual self. But now these days that I don't stew on it too much, I suppose I get out and have fun. Like if I sat there stewing on everything every day, I wouldn't still be jumping in the yards from time to time or going to camp drafts or stuff like that, I'd be sitting in the shed singing down skewies trying to figure out what what I'm trying to do. 
I suppose you could say. That experience is undoubtedly the biggest challenge you face since coming up north. What has been the best thing about coming up here and brought you the greatest joy? Probably the family aspects of the station. Like a lot of the managers treat you like family. Like once you've been around for a while, you get treated a bit like family. Like you're part of the family to most people. And I suppose I've worked for H3 for six years now, and I suppose it's more the lifestyle. Like when the work's to be done, everyone gets in and gets the work done. But then. When it comes to going to a camp after a rodeo, yes, everyone hates setting up the yards and everything for the horses and everything. But once we all muck in and get that done, we can all sit back, have a beer, go socialise with people we've worked with on previous stations and just have enjoy the time away for the weekend and, yeah, sort of everyone is here with a common goal, like, Whereas down south, sometimes you work with people that are just there to collect a paycheck, whereas up here, you're not here because you want a paycheck, you're here because you want to be here sort of thing. Do you think this is it? Like you you started off a career and have qualifications as a chef, so in the hospitality industry, you're up here. You know, sometimes people come up here for a gap year, gap gap life, midlife crisis, you know, you've been here six years and it looks like you've got no plans to go anywhere else. Is this... Are you here for the long haul? Yeah, I hope to progress my career within Hatesbury somehow. I don't know where you progress from being a ball runner, but hey, I'll find a way. But at the moment, like, Hatesbury's good because they let us do that CDU program. Currently, I'm doing a Cert 3 in agriculture. So I suppose I'm getting to do a few more certificates as well as getting paid to work. Like, what else can you ask for sort of thing? So we've talked about some of the challenges you've had and then some of the best aspects of being up here and making this massive change in your life. Let's talk about the laughs because I've been given a few yarns about you, Damo, and uh, I'm going to let you tell them because I'm nice like that. Yeah, tell right, me about eh? and well, in saying that though, I will quite happily let you tell some funny yarns about other people as well, as long as you tell some about yourself. Well, there's probably a few funny yarns that are going around here at the moment. Uh, at the moment, my nickname here is Bogged One. My record last year is twenty-two boggings in the lead up to the wet season. The only thing I can claim to that is when I did bog myself. I did it good. The worst one was uh, was on my way out one morning. I got woken up to go pull my head stockman out of a bog as he was going in for the morning to uh, pick up the stores, fruit and veg and everything. On the way out, I ended up getting myself bogged to pull him out. He got himself out. I came home with him in that car. Two days later, he pulled out my ute eventually. It was bogged right to the diff. Proper hard in the that uh, the black soil, and uh, somehow we still managed to get out that afternoon to go to get the stores, and I had to go to town. I'm not going to lie; I'm a little nervous. We had some rain this evening, and 
I was very aware of the black soil driveway as I drove in today, or the, the parts of the driveway that are black soil. So this could be me tomorrow. So I've got to try my best not to laugh at these stories because I don't want karma to come and bite me in the butt tomorrow. <laughs> well, well, pretty much once you get past that black soil part, the rest of the driveway is pretty good. Yeah, but there's a lot of... That's like tens of kilometres. Um, also, I do. I was told that there was a time that when you got bogged, you wrecked... Um, not just one, but all four tyres, and Duffy said he had to bring you out four new tyres. No, I Is wasn't. Is this true? I wasn't actually bogged. I'd gone for the shotty spare tyres that were still in the shed that I don't know how old they were, but I was having a busy week, so I didn't really have time to fix tyres, so I oh, just yeah. grabbed the shotty trailer tyres, thinking, mm-hmm. oh, they'll get me through. And... um. I actually did quite a number on one of them. Uh, when I did call Campbell out, the split rim was halfway down the road. Oh. The tyre was off in the flat and um, the tube was on the ground. I don't know how that happened, but Campbell come out, saw it. He's like, what did you do? I was like, I was driving down the road and next thing I hear banging the tyres in three pieces across the flat. So that same week I did 12 tyres in a week plus two of my own personal car. So, um, yeah. can cook, has some good life advice, um, can work in the camp, but is rough on gear. Uh, is that how we're describing you? I wouldn't say I'm that rough on gear. Oh, buddy, you just drove about 14 tyres in one week. Uh, somebody in Haysbury is going to be listening to this saying, why is he the ball runner? We need to put him somewhere from the machinery. My, it's either that or my tyre changing skills are pretty rubbish. And yeah. I'll go with the... Tire changing skills. You are pretty might rubbish. get put back in the kitchen after this, or um, see what the boss says. Yeah. Oh well, I had a good run. I also hear that, in addition to being an expert in bogging vehicles, you were the first person in the history of Mount Sanford Station to get a vehicle stuck on top of a hill. Tell me about that, Damo. Oh well, it's all fun and da- games. Until in the, the car build, doesn't move. Until the car doesn't move, but hey, it's a wet se- start of the wet season. Like, when you go up a hill and go over the crest and all of a sudden there's a big old puddle of water in front of you, there's not many places to go. There's a fence that side or a rock cliff that side. I chose to try and go straight through it and I eventually just got stuck. I think the moral of this story is though, is that you can have a laugh at this, you know. Some, you know, years ago, if this had happened to me, I would have got so, like, in such a shame spiral and been mortified and been so triggered if somebody, you know, tried to bring it up and have a lend about it. But the fact that you can sit here and just, you know, be such a good sport about it and that when people do G you up about it, it is in, you know, a, a good nature. It's not like, you know, I know other people probably on other places or elsewhere can use these in bullying, but... When everyone has a big laugh about demo or bogged one on the two way, it's it's a term of endearment. It's it's light hearted fun. It's not anything nasty. No, I suppose if we all took every day seriously at work, you wouldn't get too much done. Like yesterday, I went out on a ball run there out at Kelly's, and I called up Paul and I was asking him if he wanted these gates open in the river country. And the first thing he said to me was, "Yeah, I got you, demo." I said. He's like, where are you? Where did you get bogged? I was like, I'm not bogged. I just want to ask you a question about some gates. He's like, oh, I thought I'd better check first, though. 
And I'm thinking it must sound, because not many people know, but within the Hainsbury Company, all our VRD district stations are all linked into one two-way system, so everyone can hear what everyone's doing. So it must have made me sound like the biggest get, getting around, yelling, this place bogged, and we haven't had rain in two weeks, so. But hey, I'm going to have a laugh. And at the end of the day, whoever pulls me out gets a free carton of beer. Love it. Absolutely love it. Yeah, I have heard that the social club won't be paying for beer for quite a while with uh, your donations. Oh, yeah. well, do the crime, pay the, po- pay the fine. <laughs> now, to wrap up, I want to ask you, looking back on your story and your experiences this far in life, what is the takeaway lesson for you and the biggest thing that you've learnt? Even if you're having a terrible day at work, don't take it too seriously. Just, if there's something wrong, just speak up about it. Like, could be that you can't shoot the horse properly or why can't I pump the cradle properly or why can't I vaccinate properly. If you ask someone the right question, they're always going to help you. Go to a person with a, if you got a problem, try and go with a solution sort of thing. Like, there's no point going, I can't do it. Say, no, I can't, I've tried this way. I've, what other way can I sort of try to get to the same result? Just enjoy life and have fun. Don't take everything so seriously. If you need help in any way, shape or form for any problem, no matter how small or big, we've put a list of support services in the show notes below. Please be sure to check them out and reach out if you need help. Ag Workforce specialises in recruiting for agricultural jobs, including farm work, station work and agribusiness across Australia. View current jobs, advertise a position or register as a job seeker at agworkforce.com.au. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or leave us a review. It really helps other people find our podcast. You can find our website at centralstation.net.au where we have over 1,200 stories published from across Northern Australia. All of our podcast episodes, a tourism directory for visiting an outback cattle station and training and employment resources. We're on Facebook at Central Station True Stories from Outback Australian Cattle Stations and we're on Instagram at centralstation.net.au and we're also on Twitter at centralstation6. To discuss this episode with other listeners, head on over to our Facebook group, Central Station Podcast.